You're listening to Liz Taylor of Monash University and of This Must Be The Place podcast. The material you're about to hear was put together as part of the Amplify project. Amplify Story Resistance Radio is a part live pirate radio performance and part sound exhibition based out of Sydney. Amplify is about the importance of speaking out and the importance of listening in urban politics. In the following episode, you'll hear David Nichols, also of This Must Be The Place podcast and of Melbourne University, and he's interviewing Sabina Andron about her forthcoming book, Urban Surfaces, Graffiti and the Right to the City. So I'm talking to uh, Dr. Sabina Andron here um, about her book and her current research. I don't think it's really fair to say that it's about graffiti, is it? Fair to say that or not? It's fair to say that it's not about graffiti. I think you've picked up on that very well. (laughs) And that makes me very pleased. That's an important message I wanted to put out. But of course, for shorthand, that is what everybody's going to imagine that it's about. And, of course, you've probably been in Melbourne for how long now? Seven months. Seven months. So you've probably hit about the thousandth time that somebody has talked to you about Melbourne's famous laneways, yeah? Indeed. Yeah. And, you know, they're horrible, right? (laughs) I love them. Do you? What do you like about them? (laughs) I like that they are gritty. They are. They're more than gritty. They are. They're such a... They're such a... Like, the most interesting thing about those places are the tourists, as, as far as I'm concerned, is people trying to get photographs of... But there are many laneways, as far as I've explored, that don't have the tourists yet, or you kind of, you know, you walk down a side street and as soon as you're there, it almost feels like a pocket of disinterest from most people and from most people's that kind of curiosities or points of attraction. Um, I think they, still, they give a lot of character to this city, but yes, I suppose there is also a side of how they've been over-consumed and almost turned into a parody of themselves, particularly some laneways now. The, the, so the, the laneways of the city itself, I mean, I suppose people will go down those laneways, okay, but there's obviously probably thousands of kilometres of service lane throughout the city more broadly where nobody ever has any reason to go down there's a lot of there's a lot of graffiti there's a lot of art there's a lot of stuff happening down those places but it's, it sort of feels barely public you know it's it's often quite uh, it's really hidden I've recently heard and I'm not sure I think this is easy to verify and will quote me on it that uh, Marybeck which is the council that I live in has 67 kilometers of laneways which I think is quite remarkable. Um, And in my area of Brunswick, this is often something I do, even if I work from home and I want to take a break from work, I'll just go out and try to find laneways that I haven't walked down yet. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that attracts me so much to them or what kind of urban conditions they support and what we can learn from those spaces. Um, And indeed, there is... graffiti or should we just say um, wall markings, inscriptions, messages on walls, you can see that. Um, There's a lot of weeds, which I think again is 
quite interesting and important as an urban condition and occupation, form of occupation. Um, the pavement is often very overgrown with grass and weeds, which I also find interesting. Um, there is a lot of uh, like corrugated iron or the backsides of houses, which forms amazing kind of textures and patterns with the weathering. Um, so they are places of beauty and potential. Barely public is right. I often feel like I shouldn't be there when I walk down the laneways and you get houses with fierce dogs <laughs> kind of scare you. I, in fact, I often think like, is this fence strong enough to hold back like an angry dog? But at the same time, I think that idea about whether that fence is strong enough is quite interesting because there's also a porosity and a permeability of property boundaries and access, you know, where you're supposed to be and where you're not supposed to be. Um, but I think they are very generative and unique, really, places. Um, in my experience of cities, I haven't really seen this particular typology anywhere else. I've done, a, I've done a lot of work on rear access ways to houses and there is that ambivalence amongst homeowners about the convenience of that kind of thing, depending on what's, the, what's on the other side of their back fence. But um, the, the ambivalence about uh, the having an access way and that kind of fear of what, what might what might come in from the from the back from the back door, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, angry dogs are really good protection against that kind of thing. Or they may not be angry; they might just be territorial or excited mm-hmm. or overly friendly. But um, yeah, there's so the laneways really there's that aspect of them. There's a, a requirement, as you probably know, in many cases. I'm not sure what Mary Beck's attitude is. For this, the city of Yarra, I know because of my mother's uh, ongoing experience uh, trying to develop her back lane as a garden, that um, there's a, a general uh, assumption or policy that uh, if they are being used as vehicle access ways, then that should take precedence. And I think that that has been uh, relaxed a little bit, as a, well, certainly in her case it has, um, but there's, uh, there is there are a lot of people who like the idea and you know when you think about it it's a it's a kind of a, a central plank of new urbanism the idea of you know uh, getting into your house driving into into the, the back of your property and keeping a street clear and not having parking on the street so the illusion of a, a um, of a pedestrianized streetscape uh, anyway that's not really what your book's about what's your what's your book about <laughs> I suppose my book is an attempt to explore how we might think about the ways in which urban culture articulates itself on the visible surfaces of the city. So if we were to try and learn about cities just by reading them, not reading about them, but literally reading the walls and the surfaces of the city, how could we do that? And I think the book is an extended exploration of different ways to approach this process of reading. Not just reading, it comes literally reading. Uh, there is seeing, there is 
different ways of observing and interpreting what we see on public walls and surfaces um, and also trying to connect this with the more established public discourses, their academic discourses, but also pu public culture discourses around what is there on city walls. So from advertising, graffiti and street art most prominently, that was kind of the place where I started from in my exploration, but um, also the ways in which surfaces are managed and regulated and cleaned and maintained and so on. So in your in your book, for instance, when you took the, the cleaning thing reminded me of that terrific picture you have where somebody has written words or a big word and only part of the wall could be cleaned safely. So some of it is some of it remains and some of it um, is gone. Uh, you have a lot of great examples of the kind of that um, in interaction, uh, if that's the word, um, between kind of you know regulation and um, use the P word again, policy and I guess what I don't I don't know that I necessarily think of it as as free expression, but we could use that for a. Um, yeah, so I was reminded in uh, reading your book um, about my very short career as a... I mean, I thought it was vandalism on the trains when I would... Um, I can't remember what I wrote, but I was, you know, I was 15 or 16 or something, and I... What were you writing with? Um, a, um, well, a texter, a mm. black texter, thick black texter. Mm. I mean, they were, they were hard to come by in 1980 but um and you didn't want to waste them when you had them but um felt good it was a good good feeling and i used to um i used to write a lot on the walls of the train late at night what did you write i cannot recall um, unfortunately i cannot recall was it a long but time ago were you writing it about, wasn't, it was, about something or what were you writing your name or well, it wasn't my name no okay, it okay. was it was sentences it was sentences yeah, <laughs> excellent yeah. yeah so i was I was, I, I think I was probably trying to be thought-provoking, but, you know, when you think about what a 16-year-old considers to be thought-provoking, I mean, it wasn't, it, not that it mattered, not that I, not, not that it matters, but it wasn't sort of um, obscene or shocking, it was, the idea was to be kind of, to have someone look at it and go, what on, what on earth is that about? But um, I think I had a overblown sense of the profundity, but what I, um, what I do recall, I haven't thought about this for decades, is that I was doing this one night late at night. I was the only person in the carriage on a, the last train of the, of the night. And I realised that I was in the last, the last carriage of the last train. So the guard was in the back and could see what I was doing and was quite surely going to step in and, you know, grab me. When, um, when the train pulled into the station. So I was at the door like, and I bolted as soon as the train pulled into the station. He was yelling at me. I hadn't thought about that for years. So what? But um, there's, there's a lot to be, um, there's a lot to be said for that. A, this is an old man kind of question to you, Sabina, but is, is that kind of thing 
that I would would have been doing in you know 40 years ago thinking of myself as being um, provocative by writing stuff on the wall is that has that kind of thing graduated to you know trolling people on social media is that is that gone because you know so much so much stuff that used to be a a part of what we thought of as graffiti is now elsewhere but is it I'm not sure um I don't think it will ever be gone but it's in many ways it's it, it shifts it morphs for sure it's very context dependent it's it depends on the cultures where it appears indeed on the city regulations of the different urban environments that we're talking about um, on the political contexts uh, that we're looking at but I still see, uh, this is what I do, you know, I leave the house, I pay attention to walls all the time. And um, I still, I see much more paper protest than perhaps I noticed before. So maybe the messages that are overtly political um, are shifting more towards that, that, or uh, even I would say back towards that. Perhaps graffiti as a if we if we think about graffiti as a um, an expression of a certain form or style using like you say marker pens or aerosol and painting within a certain style which is the US wild style which is it's quite remarkable as a visual and cultural form what kind of traction that has had all over the world. Um, perhaps that style of graffiti has lost some of its overtly political tones, but I'm not sure that's the case everywhere. You talk a lot in your book about books of, you know, photographs of, I don't want to keep saying graffiti, but that it's just stuff like, on walls. Say, yeah, stuff on walls. Um, and I, I sort of I recall I mean, there, was, there were a couple of famous um, volumes. Uh, were they by, yes, they were photographed by Rennie Ellis. Was Ian Turner involved? Anyway, there was there were a couple of um, very popular books in the early seventies in Australia of um, kind of you know witty graffiti, kind right. of you know funny graffiti. And um, my recollection or my impression has been that people will photograph those things because they think of them as well. They could be gone tomorrow. So I've got to I've got to document this now, because this is just like this is a, a moving a movable feast. It's going to go, and um, that I find uh, intriguing. And I suppose it's kind of I mean I think you you probably kind of uh, indicate this that it's kind of, it's a layer on top of the um, the original production of the work that somebody then comes along and documents it and gives it a whole new. What, a whole new meaning? A whole new lifespan? Mm-hmm. There are several layers to this. If, if I can start by saying something about this kind of slogan-based graffiti, I think there is a lot of nostalgia about that. A lot of people will say, well, that stuff that was around in the 60s and 70s was so much better than what you see now, and at least they were smart about it, or at least they were witty about it. Whereas these kids today, what do they do? They just write these names that no one can read. And so there is this perceived kind of 
decline in cultural value. And I think photographing those was also very much, I think there was at least this implicit idea that when you capture those wall writings to keep them for posterity, there is something about capturing the spirit of the times and making sure it is not forgotten in its form as it's articulated on walls. Whereas um, documenting, if we call it wild-style graffiti, wasn't initially as much about capturing the spirit of the times as it was, I think, about capturing for, for the fans and for the people who saw something in this, capturing an artistic style or like the, the value that was associated with, associated with that was more artistic. Like some people will see it, most people don't and it's still criminalized, but some people see it from the beginning, they want to put it in galleries and then kind of value it as a form of artistic discourse rather than cultural discourse. I think that um, there's a difference between the two and um, because cultural value can still be negated Mm, which I think is problematic because I think there is cultural value even in the tags that are not interesting aesthetically perhaps or not interesting to your average eye. So no, I'm, I'm just going, going on about the old days. I think that's probably because it kind of marks the beginning and ending of my own time as a, as a writer on walls. But when, uh, when we had our city square created in Melbourne in the, I think it was 79, one of the features of the city square was a graffiti wall, which was a big whiteboard. It was cleaned at the end of, I think at the end of every day. Uh, it was certainly, it, was, it could be wiped down regularly. So I guess the idea was we, um, we're catering to people who might want to come by and, and write things on walls. So you could, be, you know, please, please do so in the sanctioned area. Uh, a lot of these things. So it was just a whiteboard. These people would scratch into it. You know, they wanted permanence. They didn't want to be um, wiped away at the end of the day. But I think one of the other fears, and and we'll probably um, get to this because I think it's a specifically Melbourne thing. One of the fears, and maybe not specifically Melbourne thing, but it's a Melbourne thing, um, was that the the beautiful. Um, sort of brutalist, semi-brutalist um, city square which is all made of bluestone that you know could easily be um, spoilt by uh, someone with a spray can and I think um, is, is bluestone uh, it's not as porous as sandstone but I think it's still um, once you once you get some markings on that uneven surface it's uh, it's hard to get get it out so um, yeah tell, tell us a bit about your observations when I mean, your book is global Book. It's not a Melbourne book, but it, you, you've been to many different places and seen many different examples of what you're writing about. So um, some of those, some of those surfaces and some of those applications. I think something I've, I'm just beginning to disco- discover, which could be quite interesting in understanding more about how surfaces operate and how they're managed, is um, just look at. Um, outdoor mural conservation work and their theories and their use of materials and so on. Um, 
There's a lot of, and in fact, I'm trying to do to to start this research right now and to do some work, do some interviews with um, graffiti removal companies and with the technicians who actually perform the graffiti removal to understand what sorts of substances, materials they use, what processes they have, what protocols are in place to treat different surfaces, um, what types of coatings they apply to different surfaces. Uh, because, yes, stone and brick are anyway vulnerable, no matter how much you coat them. And, um, and, and that is something that is very much built into new designs right now as a way of protecting them, preventing, actively preventing them to be damaged um, from particularly spray paint, so aerosol. Um, but I think, I think something that is um, distinctive to Melbourne, um, as far as my observations go, is the richness of outdoor posters. There is, I think, a very big outdoor postering culture in this city, and um, these posters, they contribute to the visual culture of the city, so they are a, a, a visual, uh, textual, indeed, element, but they are also very much a material element of the city, and, and I find that is very interesting in terms of how the different surfaces, and this, um, I'm not even talking about big freestanding billboards right now, I'm talking about the street level stuff that we can see at the human scale. Um, there are entire material ecologies that get formed on the surface, most of which are brick surfaces. Um, through the glue and the paper and the dust that gathers there. So um, I think these are quite interesting to analyze, even if just from a material perspective, to understand what makes up the materiality of the city, but also who are the agents that contribute to that uh, uh, arrangement, to that result. see the city or the, or the landscape or the streetscape as a series of signs and, and uh, messages. I mean, you've developed this sense of it, right, over, over time, or, or were you always...? That is a very tricky question because I never thought of it, I never stopped to think of that. I suppose I taught myself how to See through photography. I think that was that was the eye that mm, developed in terms of um, just learning how to see. But I also think photography can make and not focus on many things. Particularly um, today, I think a lot of uh, interaction that people have through their phones is to take pictures by way of making a mental note of something. Um, which prevents you from actually seeing what's there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
I didn't always see and even now I'm I realize every day how much I still have to learn about how to see so I've been um, doing this project recently where I'm trying to I, so I set myself this challenge one day I came up with this thing I said what if I was to go out and try to record all the names on a certain stretch of high street, right? So, we're to, of course, if we're in a purely residential area, there is very little there, although even then, if you pay sufficient attention, um, there is a lot of information that the walls reveal, but let's say a stretch of high street, um, what would it take to to actually read everything. And this is a bit of a different method because it doesn't involve any photographic documentation. So I decided to just take notes, to write them down, these names in a notebook. And the project kind of grew. So um, I'm now at a point where, in fact, just yesterday, I finished the Brunswick stretch of Sydney Road, mm -hmm. which I'm very pleased about. It's almost a full notebook of um, just names. But only by doing this, I've realized that I hadn't noticed many types of marks um, or marks that are placed in particular ways. So, you know, all the little stickers you get on commercial properties that designate who is in charge of the security and what type of glass uh, the property is. Uh, um, yeah, that the door was built with. Um, you still get a lot of um, utility uh, serial numbers and names of companies who manage particular street infrastructure. There is all of that. Um, so, in fact, you know, and obviously the, all the commercial signs, so in fact, at the end of the day, the expressive signs, the expressions, what we called them earlier are nowhere near the dominant form of discourse in public space. And I think I, th I think that's useful to know when we get very angry about why are there are so many tags. Well, there's so much of everything else as well, but we just don't question them. And I think the reason we question them less is because they are meant to be there, because we know that they are they have been produced in a system of not only permitted but also perhaps required um, ma marking um, but I think we should challenge that a bit more and I think we should challenge it because there is a, an important implication here which is about who has a right to be visible and at whose expense do we support certain forms of writing and expression over others? I mean, absolutely. And I, th I think um, one of the things that you also bring up in your book when you talk about uh, the... What's it called when you, when you paint a whole lot of stuff on a subway train? There's a name for it. Like a full piece? Like a full car? Something, Something like that, that, yes. Like you talk, you talk about that and how that kind of raises the consciousness of this as a... A, a signifying decline and you know that the 
the city's falling into disarray and anarchy because these kinds of things are happening. There are people, I suppose there are people with time and desire to do this kind of stuff to our infrastructure. Is, uh, and I, I immediately thought of all the times that I've seen in films or whatever, um, symbols of, that, that's used as a symbol of the city in, de, in decay is when um, things are not, um, not tidy in that way. They're actually really... Um, it's a big mess of um, not necessarily tags, but maybe, but thing, things like that. And um, you know, I sort of wondered wonder whether people have had to educate themselves into into that way of seeing the city as well. And you know, you you mentioned that it's well, say graffiti again was not per se illegal in. I think you're talking about the US. Maybe you're talking about all Western societies. Not really in itself illegal until the seventies, and the um, you know presumably there were categories that you weren't allowed to write you know certain words you couldn't write on the wall or certain things you couldn't draw on the wall or whatever but but essentially um, it's a it's a reasonably recent um, phenomenon that has has become criminalised which I f- find really interesting and I think that that's that kind of suggests that. There are people have had to develop a certain kind of antenna for this this sort of this sort of thing. Um, I've recently been to a residents association meeting here in Melbourne, which was about how the community could better tackle graffiti, and um, it was maybe fifty people in attendance, maybe a bit less. Um, and they were all very concerned and outraged by the presence of graffiti and (laughs) this is Fitzroy um, which arguably again you could say is one of the most graffitied areas in the city held together by graffiti yeah nevertheless Mm, the majority of people there were very vehemently against it, um, including people were talking about bringing, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes now, but bringing back capital punishment for graffiti. And part of the reason for this or the rationale is that the Okay, it's ugly, but it's disrespectful towards particularly our architectural heritage. Look at all these beautiful buildings that we have, Smith Street, Brunswick Brunswick Street, and they are defiled by these vandals. (laughs) It's quite, I find it quite worrying as well to see that the discourse against graffiti and the discourse is about the people who paint graffiti have not changed at all since it first got criminalized. Um, there is a moral panic element to it. There is um, almost like a bio-threat element to it. There is a lot of language that resembles the, a, a viral invasion of the city um, that cannot be contained and it cannot be stopped and it destroys the values we uphold most year and i found that in that particular context if people who feel this way 
have at some point been educated into feeling this way, they certainly won't remember it. They will think that this is the default natural state. But educating ourselves out of it is an even bigger challenge. And don't get me wrong, and I, I want to be clear about this. Um, I don't think we should all agree that this is not a problem. I think um, there is some substance to the concern about who controls the city. If the city is out of control, then I don't feel safe. Um, conflating images with threats is a separate issue and I think it's problematic in many ways but um, I understand that there is an inclination that many if not most of us have to feeling safer and feeling that um, urban environments that are orderly, clean and well kept are more desirable. The problem arises, in my opinion, when we don't separate anymore between what we define as the threat and what actually is a threat, because a clean and orderly envi environment can be as threatening to our um, rights of rights to free citizenship in many ways than uh, some tags on a wall. Yeah, you, you use in your book, you talk about uh, Le Corbusier hoping to whitewash everything, which, uh, I mean, he's, he's something about him that I think um, he's demonised everywhere and I fully understand why and thank God he wasn't allowed to do all the things that he, he wanted to do. His influence obviously lives on. In, in so many ways but there's a kind of a sense in that idea that you know it's it's classic environmental determinism that you know if we keep if we keep everything if we keep, keep up appearances keep everything nice and and uh, unproblematic uh, superficially then we'll be uh, we'll all be well behaved you know yeah there's um, I, I wonder, like thinking about... In fact, sorry to interrupt, no, no, but no. Uh, I've recently seen on, on LinkedIn uh, Sally Cap, the Lord Mayor, she had a photo um, of herself with a high-pressure wash, cleaning, um, I think it was a public statue, I can't remember exactly what, and she was, the, the post was about how important it is to keep the city clean and you know this is a priority and we're investing this much and removing the graffiti so um, it's it, it is still very much the the appearance of order is equated with actual order and uh, safety and desirability and livability and all of these features that we want cities to have we want to live in cities that are uh, welcoming and clean and safe and so on but um, the ways in which we measure that and particularly the culprits that we find against that I think we're looking in the wrong places many times I mean I was thinking about thinking about Fitzroy again that notoriously in the 1960s and 70s um, and earlier when the Housing Commission of Victoria wanted to clear blocks 
in Fitzroy and other inner city areas, they would famously use the process of white anting, which would be to um, buy as many of the places as possible uh, and demolish some and leave some others empty so that vandals would come and, you know, vandals or thieves, people would come and strip the lead and things like that or take anything that wasn't nailed down. And so the place would start to, to get an appearance of, you know, um, decay. And, you know, it was, a, it was a, a, an official, officially sanctioned process to, um, you know, hasten the demise of a, of a place. So, of course, um, you know, no wonder the people of Fitzroy, not that they would remember this, they're all, they're, no one's going to be old enough, but they, um, you know, quite possibly fear that as a it's the beginning of, of a uh, it could be the beginning of a quick um, sort of downfall of the uh, of the area the people who you're talking about who will be concerned that this brings the demise to the area they're also the people who love street art they will be the first people who will say oh yes but we're proud of that beautiful mural and we want to maintain it, and we treasure it, and we think it's a symbol of our community. Um, again, this is something I wasn't familiar with before I arrived in Melbourne, but um, it is quite famous, at least to locals, the Keith mural, uh, the Keith Haring mural in Collingwood um, that he painted, I think, in '84, and that is still being restored and conserved at great cost, at huge cost, and to such an extent to which the music venue, which is right next to the it. The Toad. Yes, the Toad. They have bans on how loud the music can be because the vibrations will damage the paint on the mural that's right next to it. And I think there's a question about how, when we say, you know, this represents, and it's an important symbol to the community. Uh, we always have to question these terms, like wh who is the community? What does that even mean? It's an important symbol to who? Um, and why did that end up being the important symbol and not any of the other marks or in fact the collective assemblage of these marks? And that's, I think, part of the point I'm trying to make in my book, which is that we should perhaps start valuing the collective meaning and force of our capacity to write on walls because the city is ours and the more that is visible the healthier the urban environment so if we just have a mural city that and many municipalities have done this you know throughout Europe the US Latin America uh, I'm sure in Australia as well, I don't know yet, but you know, municipalities sponsor street art festivals and murals and um, they include these in their creative city development strategies um, while at the same time there's wildly different standards. So, because they do this and at the same time they criminalize clean and continue to de demonize everything that is not painted and created in that particular aesthetic form. So I think we're a bit naive if we think that the form is the most important aspect of this conversation. It's more about 
our right to occupy space. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you very much, Sophia. Thank you, David.